I would love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And uh, the sermon notes in your bulletin will be especially helpful to you throughout the morning and especially right now, if I may say. <clears throat> Every year, we take the opportunity afforded us and tell the story of redemption at Advent time. Uh, we try to keep this story of redemption prominent all year long. That Advent season gives us a special time to work on understanding theological themes uh, as years roll by. And I want to look with you at that first section called Advent at Sunset Bible Church. Some of you are very familiar with our rhythm and plan, and others of you are newer to this. And so I just want to remind you where we are. Um, we are following a seven-year plan that looks at seven mountain peaks, we call them, in the story of redemption. And there you have it. Um, this is our, our second time through, although we only did Abraham once, because year, the first time through we started with Ruth, and then said, hey, we should do this for seven years, and realized we skipped the patriarchs. Terrible. So we went back and did the patriarchs uh, on the second round. Uh, and so we've only done that one once. But I want to just review these with you, because it helps us go where we're headed this morning. So under the, under the heading of Abraham and the promise back in 2016, we focused in on the Abrahamic covenant as described in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. And if you were with us then, of course, a couple years ago, you remember three key elements in God's promise to Abraham. Land, descendants, blessing. And specifically, blessing in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, is what, what God said to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed to be a blessing, and most specifically, looking ahead to Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3. That in the Abrahamic covenant, when God said, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That this was the gospel told beforehand. You'll find that again, Galatians 3. That was the gospel in seed form in God's promise to Abraham. So those things we talked about under that initial heading. Ruth, 2017, under the shadow of his wings, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who, who came into Ruth's life, older man, younger girl, and, and, and married her, and their offspring produced Obed, and then Jesse, and then the great King David. But the idea of kinsman redeemer was captured there in the story of Ruth, the picture of Jesus, the one who redeems us. Following that, we move to David, shepherd, warrior, king, and of course, uh, David, as the, the great king, and Messiah Jesus presented in Scripture as the greater son of David. The title, Son of David, runs all the way through Scripture. On the throne of his father David, he'll sit. You find this about Messiah, we'll see it today as we move along into our main texts. So we spent our time there in 2 Samuel 7 looking at the Davidic covenant. And again, some of these texts, if you stay with us year after year, okay, for at least seven years, these texts will be riveted in your minds, and you'll understand a lot of good biblical theology. The prophets, actually where we're studying now, the book of Isaiah, a light in the darkness. Uh, during difficult seasons in the land of Israel, uh, God spoke through the prophets to say, Messiah will come. The incarnation last year, the virgin son, we told the story of, the, of, of, of Christmas right out of the Gospel of Luke, primarily and to celebrated the coming of Jesus and the angels and the shepherds and so on. And that leads us, as you've heard, and you know we've talked about it coming up, uh, this year, joy to the world, 
and the gospel to the ends of the earth, and our subtitle this year, The Word Spreads. Okay, so what you see there on the front of your bulletin and on that artwork, kind of the big picture. Each year we, we adjust the program a bit, but the word spreads is our, kind of like our subtitle for this year's play. And then next year, we move ahead to viewing the gospel from the, the end of it all, the end game. And we look back, as we call it, from heaven's portal and look at the beauty of God's plan of redemption. And then the year after that, Lord willing, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and, uh, 1, 2 and 3, the Abrahamic Covenant once again. And we'll remember, uh, again, these wonderful promises. I love the rhythm that we have. And I love seeing, uh, as the years go by, some of our kids who are pretty young, uh, in different plays, find different ways to step into the, the next one and say, I remember last time, so-and-so was Ruth, or so-and-so was. And here we get to, or you get to, or something like that. I love all of that. Well, this morning we are going to find our way toward Luke chapter 9, but we're going to start at chapter 1. And I want us to remember the idea, as presented here under your sermon title, a savior for the nations, a savior for the nations. And I want to bring together some of our past themes and set us up for what we're going to do this Advent season. So glad for it. I love Advent season. Uh, there's a song that says it's the most wonderful time of the year, and I think it is. I like it. I love it. I love Christmas, not just for the amenities of lights and bells and things like that, but for the rich theology we get to study every single year, and I love it. So pray with me, please, that God would help us here in our time of His Word. Our Father, with great joy, we open the Word of God together, thanking you that you have blessed us to have a copy of the Word of God in our own hands and to be able to come together with the people of God and, and celebrate truth and look to Jesus and, and look at the master plan. Our Father, capture us with the beauty of what you do and what you have done, with the story of Christmas as told down through the ages. And we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke, then, as you know, is one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as I put here in front of you under this little section called Today's Text, it's almost like Luke just couldn't stop. So Luke, the same writer, gave us not only the longest gospel, uh, 24 chapters, but more material than Matthew. Matthew has 28 chapters, but just in case you keep track of such things, Luke in 24 chapters has more words. So if you hit that in trivia, what's the longest gospel? The answer is Luke, not Matthew. But then Luke went on to give us the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, telling of the, the story of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so today, I want to start that, that with you, looking at the story that he tells in Luke chapter 1. And I've got a whole number of highlights. And this, this initial run-up is not in your sermon notes. So just bear with me until we get to where your notes begin in chapter 9, all right? But I've got my Bible open to Luke 1, 1, and I want us to remember who is speaking to us by God's inspiration. So the first four verses of this, of this gospel story goes like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. Now watch this. Having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty. That's Luke's goal. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. 
And then he proceeds to tell the story, beginning with John the Baptist. But in that opening paragraph, Luke points out his goals. He says, I've, I've, I've checked this out. I have studied this account very carefully. I've followed it closely. And I want you as the reader, specifically the person to whom he's writing here, I want you to have certainty about what I'm saying. So understand that that's the goal of Dr. Luke in giving us this large account, Luke, and certainly into the book of Acts. I want you to have certainty about your faith. I want you to have certainty about God's promise plan. So we look then into what follows the story of John the Baptist. I'm not going to read all of that or, or comment on all of it, but I want to go to chapter 1 and verse 30. This is the story of the, the angel greeting Mary, who will be the mother of Jesus. And to look with you then at verse 30, there are a couple of themes I want us to pick up that, that will help us when we get to chapter 9. The angel said to Mary, then in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And as we have preached this multiple times, 2 Samuel 7 is just blowing up right here in the text. A king who will reign forever from the, house of, uh, the throne of David, kingdom that will never end. Man, if that doesn't speak Davidic covenant, I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can miss it. Further on here in chapter 1, we want to go to Zechariah's song. All right, this begins in chapter 67. Zechariah, of course, the father of John the Baptist, and he is singing about the work of his son John. But I just want you to remember with me a couple of these things. So his father begins in verse 67. I hate to not read the whole thing, but I'm not. And he begins by blessing God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And then I'm going to go right down to verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise or the day spring from on high shall visit us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. These these early people, listen, they understood the Word of God. They studied Old Testament Scripture. They were bathed in it from the time they were young. The words of the prophets that seemed so foreign to us, that was their Bible. And they studied it and read it and memorized it. And we'll see that even more in just a moment here. Chapter 2 then, the birth of Jesus specifically, as we're familiar with the angels meeting the shepherds. Verse 11, the angel announcement, For unto you is born this day... In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Man, love those moments, as you heard a song a moment ago. Down further, chapter 2, verse 29, we meet Simeon, who is a devout man, we read in verse 25, righteous, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and it had been revealed to him, verse 26, that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Can you imagine? I mean, you're safe today. I haven't seen the Messiah yet. I don't have to get worried about being run over by a camel. God had let him know, you will live to see that day, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And so he says then, in verse 29, as he holds baby Jesus in his arms, he blesses God and says, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, look at that last verse for a moment. I believe very much this man knew his Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Abrahamic covenant. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He knew Psalm 96 that says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare his glory among the nations. He knew, he knew the Psalter, the Psalms, that God's glory is to be displayed to the whole earth. And so here then, he's able to give praise, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now you've heard us say this in preaching multiple times. It bears saying here again, virtually every time you see the word Gentiles, it is an English translation of the Greek word ethne or ethnos or some, some form of that word. So we would today, we wouldn't usually use the term Gentiles. We would speak of different ethnicities or, or uh, unreached people groups. Okay, Those are more current terms that we would use. And it would reflect the same idea. Jew Gentiles in the Bible is anybody who's not of the Jewish crowd. All right? So they use the term Gentiles. It sounds kind of strange to us. We're going to send a missionary to the Gentiles in uh, you know, Eastern Europe. And you're going to say, who? Well, where are they at? Well, it's anybody who's not specifically of the Jewish group. Ethne, ethnos, ethnic groups. And I'm pressing on that because this is the point of our, of our story this year. And I think it's the gospel story. God is sending his story of redemption to all the ethne, all the ethnos all the ethnic groups of the world to the ends of the earth. The word spreads. Uh, Simeon understood this in what he said. I like that. A light for revelation to the, all the ethnic groups and for glory to your people Israel. Anna, of course, follows right behind Simeon. You meet Anna in chapter 2, verse 36. This prophetess Anna, older in years, and at the end of verse 38, uh, she, she gives thanks to God and she's going she's gonna to speak to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love that. Now, moving on, then chapter 3, just a couple more and we'll get all the way to chapter 8. Uh, chapter 3, then, is the story of John. And here's a quotation from our book right now, book of Isaiah, in chapter 3, verse 4. It's talking about what, what John the Baptist is going to do. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, chapter 4. Jesus comes to Nazareth, and again, we're going to find ourselves in Isaiah. You've heard us say this. This is Isaiah 61. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and in verse 16, chapter 4, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath and stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there he rolled up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sat down, eyes of everyone in the synagogue fixed on him. 
I can picture the electricity in the crowd, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and you've heard us comment as we will again as we get to Isaiah 61. In reading this text, Jesus is speaking of himself, and he stops mid-sentence. You must understand this to, to capture the moment, because the next phrase says, and the, year, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus stops mid-sentence and says, no, this part is now fulfilled in your hearing. The day of vengeance of our God is for later. And this is a clear indication of Jesus' first coming and his second. A concept that Jesus' followers did not get. They saw one coming and then the kingdom. More on that in a minute. But Jesus understood, even here as he reads from Isaiah 61, to stop mid-sentence to us. It would be mid-sentence, but it was perfect for what God had intended from the prophet Isaiah. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, chapter 8, we're almost to 9. One little vignette to pick up, one phrase, really. Chapter 8, verse 22, and that paragraph that follows. All right, you doing okay? Having you turn pages and turn pages, we'll, we'll settle down here in a minute. But uh, a little bit of work at the beginning, keeping you on your toes. Chapter 8, then, starting verse 22, this is the, one of the stories of Jesus getting in a boat with his disciples and taking a little boat ride. This is the one where he falls asleep and there's a big windstorm and, and they wake him up because he's taking a nap and they say, Master, we're perishing. And you read in verse 24, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm and he says, where is your faith? And they were scared to death. They were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, okay, here's the phrase, who is this? Who is in the boat with us that even the winds and the water obey him? There's the question. Who is this? Who is this man? That he can rebuke the winds and the waves and they stop? Who does that, we say? So you come then to chapter 9. And our main focus today, as you know from your study notes, will be verses 18 down to verse 50. But uh, some of it more, some of it a little lighter touch today after some very specific things. A savior for the nations. Now, I'm going to pick up then in chapter 9, and I'm just going to read these section by section as we get to them. All right? So this first little paragraph, it happened as he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then here's the punchline. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This takes you right back to chapter 8. Who is this? And he presses on it today. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for the group in saying, the Christ of God. Now, Christ, Christos, the Anointed One, that would be Messiah. This is, a, this is an amazing answer. Peter is identifying Jesus, the one in their presence, as the long-awaited Messiah, the one foretold from the beginning of time, Genesis chapter 3, the first prophecy of one who would step on the head of the snake and then right to the 
Abrahamic covenant and down through history. All the other ones I didn't cover today. No, Peter's confession is powerful. You are, you're the Christ. You're Messiah. We believe you are that one spoken of for thousands of years. We believe that this is you. Now, a couple of things on your, your sermon notes, just to, to help us think about this. Peter's answer is loaded with prophetic implications. Peter is saying, we believe you are the one that Isaiah was writing about, and Zechariah, and Jeremiah, and Malachi, and Micah. You're that one. I mean, can you imagine if there are thousands of years of prophecies and in your presence, if it was you, to say, we believe that you are the answer to all of those years of prophecies, all of the voice of God down through the prophets. We believe this is you. Profound prophetic implications. Also, my next comment here, this has strong implications for, a, for political aspirations. And I alluded to this a moment ago, there are evidences all the way through the Gospels that the disciples did not understand two comings of Jesus. How could they? They are melded together, as is often the case in the Old Testament, when there are prophecies about the future. Issues of judgment are often woven together, some of it fulfilled near, some of it fulfilled far. And so, looking at it from an Old Testament sense, you would see the coming of Messiah and the kingdom. And that was the thinking of Jesus' followers. The Messiah is here. The King is here. He's going to reign on the throne of David. Sweet deal. We're, we're hanging with the big guy. I mean, there's at other places, they're saying, hey, uh, when you come in your kingdom, are we going to have like thrones near you? They're thinking kingdom. Kingdom now. May I say, kind of like a lot of people around us now, thinking, it's time. I mean, look at the world. Well, Jesus' disciples clearly had that in mind. Messiah is here. Where's the kingdom? Now, I gave you a couple of things here. Uh, throughout uh, the notes, you'll see a number of scripture texts that are in bold. And I hope to just briefly touch on those. And any that I do not, I would encourage you to, to pick up later. But this, this looking for not only a, a Messiah who will be a spiritual savior, but a political one, a couple of uh, notes for this. Uh, Luke 24, this is the story of the two disciples with whom Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus after he is raised from the dead. And they don't realize, they're, they're talking to the one who died on the cross for their sins just before that and was raised from the dead. They're walking with who they believe is a stranger who doesn't understand the latest news. In fact, they say that in verse 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on around here? And they describe what Jesus had done. And in verse 21, you see, you see kind of the point. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Of course, past tense, their hope has now been shattered because Christ has been crucified. And they're hearing these weird reports that he has been raised from the dead. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And when you read that, don't just think spiritual savior. They didn't understand all that you and I understand. The Gospels had not been written yet. They hadn't read the Apostle Paul. The one to redeem Israel. This is, this is like code for throw out the Romans and you know, revive the, the kingdom of David. You're going to reign on the throne of David? They're thinking kingdom now. There are political aspirations here. Similarly, 
uh, again, the same writer, I go to Acts chapter 1, which I think is even more clear about what they were hoping for. Acts chapter 1, Luke's second letter under the same heading uh, to Theophilus, of course. Uh, but in verse 6, as Jesus is standing with them right before his ascension, what do they ask him? They don't ask him, how did you rise from the dead? What happened during those three days? Um, there's a lot of questions you would ask. But here their question is, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see this? That's what they're expecting. So we got over the dying on the cross part because here you are. That was pretty cool. Now, when's the kingdom? And then Jesus does it again. Moments later, he leaves. Can you imagine? He just leaves. And they're standing there staring at the sky saying, well, what do we do now? I mean, come on. We just got you back and then you just, I mean, you just left. And that, of course, is when God sends the angels to say, men of Israel, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who you saw go into heaven, he's going to come in like manner if you saw him go to heaven. In the meantime, go back to Jerusalem and pray and wait for the promise from the Father and the Holy Spirit. And away you go into the book of Acts. Now they're going to walk right into what we call the church age. And they didn't see it coming. And I mentioned here, Simeon indeed had the right idea. Luke 2.32, a light, a light for revelation to the nations. When I think about the, the, the disciples and what they were hoping for, um, without making any political comment, but the little J. Monster humor in me uh, wonders if on their robes they had, had uh, embroidered something like, make Israel great again. <laughs> that really would capture what they were hoping. That's what they were hoping. It's time. Messiah's here. Make Israel great again. Uh, really, I think, is what their heart was all about. And then he died. And then after resurrection, he left again. So the question, I, as you notice, I have each of my four sections here uh, with a, a question, a purpose, a call, and a future, and a question alongside each one. The question, who am I? Jesus answers very clearly. And I, I note here as well, of course, the question Jesus asked then, he still asks now of you and me, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I fear that today there might even be some who would answer as the disciples did of old, hoping for a political savior, hoping for someone who will just fix the world as it is. Uh, somehow in this world, believing that our biggest problem is politics or the economy or the movements of nations or various illnesses that shall remain unmentioned. Um, who do you say that I am? What are you expecting Jesus to do for you? What do you anticipate as you look to Christ? Who do you say that I am? Now, a purpose, why am I here? If you look at that next little paragraph, uh, I have a mistake there on your notes. It should say verses 21 and 22. My fault. Uh, not 23 to 27, that's the next section. 21, 22, if you look at that in your, in your Bible, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, that is his true identity, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Can you imagine that statement? The Son of Man must 
suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and then be raised. And he has just, he has just acknowledged, with Peter's help, he's the Messiah. And I, I note here in front of you in your notes, Jesus interrupts his disciples' nationalism, indeed, make Israel great again, and personal aspirations with what really would have been a jarring announcement. The Son of Man must suffer. And I, I give you here the cross-reference. In Matthew 16, the same account, of course, each gospel writer, when they deal with the, the same uh, event, they describe it a little bit different. This is the moment that Luke leaves out, but Matthew mentions, where Peter reacts very strongly and says, Lord, this will never happen to you. I, like, like, come on, haven't you read the text? There's a king in a kingdom. What, what do you mean suffer many things and be, be killed? And what, what is all that? And Peter reacts, in Matthew 16, you'll see it. Peter reacts as though Jesus has, is like just depressed that day or, or missed the memo or somehow it's like, come on, buddy, buck up. We're not going to take over the place with an attitude like that. One of us doesn't get it. Indeed, indeed, one of us doesn't get it. Jesus understood what he had come to do. Uh, you might, actually, by your personality, you might have been in Peter's shoes. As you looked and saw this guy heal the sick and raise the dead, and you're thinking, this guy really, I mean, he could go places, and we're with him. So he goes places, we're going places. You remember elsewhere, they're discussing who's the greatest, and that shows up later in this text, same chapter or two. Who's greatest in the kingdom? I mean, we're close. Peter, James, and John, we're with the big guy. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll keep track of you guys. Really. It'll be all right. Twelve thrones. You know, I'll be on the right hand, you'll be on the left, but you have a throne. Nothing wrong here. No, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and die, be raised. Can you imagine? The disciples are saying, wait a minute, that, that's not in the script. But as I put on your sermon notes as you head to the other side of the page, Jesus understood his mission was not political or economic or simply, please get this, moral improvement. That wasn't it. He wasn't here just to make wise sayings that would repeat, be repeated down through the ages and cause everybody to be a little nicer to one another. His, his mission was not moral improvement alone. His mission was the gospel. And the text there in Romans 3, 21 to 26, describes this very carefully. All the sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. A propitiation, a satisfaction for the wrath of God. Jesus understood what he was here to do. His followers at this point did not. He understood his mission was redeeming the human race. The disciples had no concept here, I mentioned, of what's called the church age. This long period between Christ's first and second coming, Ephesians 3, uh, you find that Paul uses the term the mystery. That is, that which had up to this time been, been hidden and has now been revealed full study in itself right there. They did not understand first coming, church age, second coming. Didn't get it. And so Jesus is living into that. So a question, who am I, Jesus would ask. Peter gets it right. You're the Christ of God. A purpose, why am I here? Jesus understood that, asked of him. He would say, I'm here to suffer and die, be killed, and on the third day, be raised. 
be rejected by my own people. He understood his purpose, a redeemer. Now, verses 23 to 27, this fourth little vignette, watch carefully, a call, why are you here? Right at this point, if you're thinking, uh, taking over the world and things like that, this is also jarring, even as the last couple verses. So then Jesus says to them, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So his disciples, again, with thrones on their mind, have heard him describe his mission as suffering, being rejected, dying, and rising. And then he says, and if you're going to walk with me, hey guys, take up your cross. This is the first reference to cross explicitly in the Gospel of Luke. Take up his, his cross. People sometimes say, well, my cross is this or that or event or family issue or that person or, um, you know, medical problem. Those are all real burdens. This is an instrument of death he's talking about. Join me on the road to Calvary where nobody comes back alive. Join me. Jesus says, you're going to be a follower of mine? Oh, can you just set aside all your dreams of glory for the moment? We have some work to do here. And it's going to be tough along the way. If you think you're going straight from uh, trusting Christ as your Savior and head right into kingdom time, uh, hold on. There is another gap. as We've called it the church age. But for us, if you take a look here on my notes, this call, why are you here? Many times people sign up, so to speak, I put in quotations just to get the idea. They think they signed up for a trip to heaven and forget about the idea that to follow Christ involves walking, so to speak, on the road to Calvary. And I mentioned here, of course, the order for Jesus and for us. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. Before glory, Christ is going to be uh, delivered over and be rejected, suffer, be killed, and he will die. Suffering precedes glory. It's that way in the text as well, of course, as you read the story of Jesus. Suffering precedes glory. By the way, how are you doing right now? I don't know. Maybe not headed to a cross immediately, but be aware. Sometimes people say, and I do too, you know, this is really hard. And we have something in mind, typically, when we say that. This is really hard. It's really a hard season, or this thing is really hard to do. Well, as with Jesus, suffering precedes glory. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's not be shocked when there are hard things, like something weird is happening. Huh, this is, this is hard in this broken and followed and, and desperate world. Well, yes, you're right, it is. Suffering precedes glory. Now, you look at the next little paragraph, again, I'm moving quickly, because I'm after the progression here. What you have next is the story of the transfiguration. About eight days after these sayings, 
Verse 28, he took with him Peter and John and James, went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, don't miss that, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter, those with him, heavy with sleep, now fully awake, do you think so? They saw his glory mentioned twice then, and the two individuals standing with him. And as the men were departing, Peter, who could hardly know what to say, not knowing what he said, verse 33, will say, Master, it's good to be here. Let's make three tents or structures, or you guys got to hang out. we got to put you up someplace. There's no motels. What are we going to do here? Let's put up something. You guys can, oh, man, Peter, just don't talk right now. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. <laughs> and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. A future, I call this a future. And I, 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 I just think of the privilege. We could, this is a whole sermon in itself. A couple things I want to grab. Peter and John and James got a glimpse of heaven. Just a glimpse of glory. The, the, the transfiguration of Jesus. And then Moses and Elijah. I suspect Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Are appearing here with Jesus. Speaking about his departure. That is Jesus' departure. What he, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Speaking to him, how long was this conversation? I don't know. Were they there for a couple minutes or hours? We're not told. It could have been some time pass. We don't know how long the conversation was. But they got a glimpse of glory. And I put that on your sermon notes. Where are we headed? In short, glory awaits. I, I do wonder these things. Text never gives us an indication, really. What did this do to Peter and James and John? What did it do to their... Their, their thoughts about life and death. If, if you had if you had the privilege of sticking your, your head into heaven for just a couple minutes uh, and, and were overwhelmed with the sense of it, I suspect it'll, I don't know, what does heaven smell like? You might say, well, downwind of a bakery or downwind from Tony Romas. Kind of like that. A mountain meadow, flowers in bloom, the wind bringing the, that, that wonderful fragrance. Was it, is it like that? What, what is the fragrance in heaven? What will the sounds be? How bright? Will it be crowded? Not quite big? What's your image? Well, if you had the privilege of sticking your head into heaven for a few minutes, how do you think that would affect you as you became ill or got older and faced death? Do you think maybe the edge would be taken off just a bit? I suspect so. You know what? If I get to go to that place, I am so in. I suspect a little bit. I think similarly would be the story of the, the Apostle Paul later on, uh, who got a glimpse of heaven, and I think from there on was never afraid to die. Thank you, Lord, you might say, for that, for that moment. Glory awaits. This, this text says a lot about our understanding of death and time and everything that is real. Again, I'm giving you uh, a number of texts here in bold for you to think of as cross-references. I really appreciate on this point, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, which talks about dying, death for a believer. And it speaks at that moment when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. 
You need to think about that phrase. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by what is really life. That is a reverse of the way we normally think. We think of this as life, and that is the end. And the Apostle Paul flips it. Isn't that interesting? No, no, this is mortality here. Then it will be life. The, the, the day that mortality is swallowed up by life. That's an amazing phrase. I, 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 it says a lot about our future as believers. Why do you think, in verse 36, Peter, James, and John kept silent and told no one? Why do you think? You can, you can mull that over. They kept silent and told no one in those days. Obviously, they told later. But in those, in those days, they didn't say anything about it. I suspect, my hunch is, when you come down off the mountain, and they, they say, hey, how was your hike? The other guys, how was your hike with Jesus? You say, oh, it was great. You know, went to the top of this mountain, hung out with, you know, Moses and Elijah and stuff. And all right, what did you do this week? There's no way to describe. Anybody who listened would say, oh, seriously. You what? Moses and Elijah. Okay, so... Wow, that must have really been something. Did they have name tags? How did you know who they were? Did Jesus introduce you? Is that what it was? I can't imagine. Well, they kept silent in those days and just thought. Now, I've, I've given you those four phrases. That a question, who am I? Jesus asked the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior for the nations. That's been the, that's been the flow of his history all the way from the beginning. Genesis, and then as we begin our progression the Abrahamic Covenant, all the way along, a savior for the nations, a purpose. Why am I here? Oh, not for political or economic or simply moral transformations, but for the salvation of the human race, the savior for the nations. Why are you here? Well, to, to join Jesus in that, in that road to, to, to glory that involves suffering along the way. Suffering always precedes glory. A future, where are we headed? Well, the, the, the future... Glory is described here in just a little bit. I caught glimpses. As we think about responding to this, I'm going to highlight just a couple of things from verses 37 to 50. Do you see in verse 37 what happens? The next day when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met them, and on we go with a broken world. Do you think on that mountaintop Peter had it right when he was saying, can we just stay here? Can we just stay right here? You ever had a moment like that? I have. We say, if we could just stop the world right now, I'll just take this right here with these people or this person and this moment. If we could just stop time here, that'd be great. But you have to come down from the mountain back to the real world where there's brokenness and needs and people running to Christ and saying, please help me. I, I just think verse 37 is, a, is a quite a jolt. When they came down from the mountain, the great crowd met him, and I can just imagine Peter and James and John saying, you, hold on, here they come again. More needy people. Oh my goodness. More needs to meet. More phone calls, more emails. Come on. We just saw glory. But here they come. And I note here in this section under responding to God's word, we too still live in a broken world that groans under the crushing weight of sin. Until the day that God calls us to be with him, we are called to join God in his mission to redeem men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all the ethnic groups. 
and apart from him, the world will not be reached. Sometimes we end up in these days being crusaders for political or economic or moral or who knows what else for those efforts. We become crusaders, may I suggest, for the wrong thing. All of those things will fade. All of them. All of them. Crusaders, if we're to be them, we should be that for Christ, the Savior for the nations. Um, I mentioned here, yes, we groan. Romans 8, three groans, you remember. Creation groans. We groan. The Holy Spirit communicates on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. Three groans and then glory. Romans 8 plays out that way. We groan too. I gave you a little line there. When you think about the things that make you groan, I suspect you know exactly what to write. If you were going to put it in words, that causes my soul to cry out to God. What is it? A savior for the nations. A savior for the nations. It's where we're going to be the next three Sundays as well. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in the book of Acts. Watching what happens as the word spreads. But the, but the Savior for the nations is where we wanted to start today. I'm glad he's come. I hope you're trusting him as your Savior from sin. Savior for the nations is Savior for us. Would you stand with me, please, as we close our time together in prayer? Our Father, I thank you for the story of Jesus as told by Dr. Luke. The Gospel and then the book of Acts that bear his name. And Father, we are, we are a couple thousand years removed. And we, with the disciples then, we still live in a broken world where creation itself groans waiting for the day that it is redeemed. Even as we groan waiting for the day when we are fully redeemed at home with you. Now, Father, until that day, would you help us certainly to be on mission with you wherever you've placed us, whatever career path or however you have put before us to spend our time, that we would be on mission for you in, in seeing men and women come to Christ. And then as well that our own hearts would be crying out to you with those areas that burden us, knowing that you have come to be our Savior and Redeemer and King. Thank you that that day of glory awaits. We look forward to it even now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.